Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Robots Radio presents. In 2002, director Chris Columbus drew us deeper into the world of magic and mystery. In 2020, we try an affordable bourbon that's getting harder to find. The movie is Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets. The whiskey is Buffalo Trace. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we're looking at the 2002 film, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. You know, Bob, while I was watching this movie this week, I was a little bit nervous that doing two Harry Potter movies in a row might be a little bit too much. But I realized I'm actually kind of really excited that we're taking each of these movies two at a time and doing them back to back. I think it'll really give us a chance to kind of get a deeper delve into the world, even as we spread the reviews out, you know, over a decent bit of time. Yeah, I totally agree, Brad. I'm really happy that we get to look at them back to back. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode, we did The Sorcerer's Stone. So this week we're looking at The Chamber of Secrets, and then we'll do two Harry Potter movies in each of the next three seasons to round out the series. But Brad, I think you're totally right. It's so nice to be able to compare them having watched them so closely, because I feel like if we put too much time in between watching each of these movies, we really wouldn't be able to see just how different they are uh, in tone and direction and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually have a lot of thoughts on Chris Columbus as a director in this movie and, you know, for the Harry Potter franchise as a whole. And I'm really excited to get into it with you, Bob. Yeah, I am too. So why don't we get this out of the way early on, Brad? We know the backstory of the Harry Potter universe, having talked about it last week. But this is the second chapter in the Harry Potter saga, and I think it needs explaining. So let's get into our favorite segment, Brad Explains. Brad, will you break down the narrative of this film for our audience? So, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets revolves primarily around the idea that there's this mysterious force that's traveling around Hogwarts and it's slowly trying to kill off young witches and wizards of muggle descent, muggles being non-magical folk. So essentially, the entire book is a, a series of mysteries of sorts trying to slowly figure out what is trying to kill all these students. As more and more students become petrified, the public loses confidence in Dumbledore And things become more and more tense as Harry, Ron, and Hermione race to figure out the mystery behind the Chamber of Secrets and who is controlling this monster. By the end of the film, Harry realizes that there is a diary that contains the memory of Lord Voldemort when he was a student at Hogwarts, and he's been controlling young Ginny Weasley through the diary. Uh, Harry fights the Basilisk, which is the monster that's been trying to kill people, and ends up defeating it and destroys the diary, uh, dispelling this version of Lord Voldemort, saving Ginny, and moving on in the story. So, there you have it. A very bad Brad Explains. (laughs) I don't know if that was a bad Brad Explains. I thought it was pretty good, actually. And it is much shorter than this film, which, it's worth noting, is a two-hour and 45-minute film. Now, I will say this. I I was watching the timer closely because I think the actual runtime is like two hours and 42 minutes. It does finish at about 2.30, and there's a solid like 10 to 12 minutes of credits. Yeah, the credits so on all the Harry Potters are, are extra long. Are so long. So it is a two-and-a-half-hour movie, which is... A really long children's movie. Brad, I don't know about you, but uh, we'll get into this too, but I think for a long time I preferred this film to Sorcerer's Stone. I think it has a lot more going on thematically. It's quite a bit darker. The stakes are a lot higher. 
But I think I've always felt like this movie just feels much, much longer than Sorcerer's Stone did. Did you get the sense that this movie really kind of dragged in parts? Oh, for sure. I I think that we talked about this last week. One of the problems with the movie is that once you get to Hogwarts, it just kind of wanders around the school grounds and you just kind of see the characters in these random, you know, classes doing random things and you're not always sure where the plot is going. I really feel like that is enhanced in this movie. You know, there's just random scenes where all of a sudden you see a bunch of kids in sleighs going across the lake with a horse and you see them suddenly dueling with, you know, or learning how to duel. And it just kind of feels like the movie has all sorts of random things being thrown at them. And you don't always get a sense that the plot is moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And I actually put myself through a little bit more torture with this movie because I was too lazy to get up and walk into the other room and grab my DVD copy of this movie. So I pulled it up on YouTube TV and watched it there. And I didn't realize it's one of those versions of, I think it's really only the first two movies that do this. But when they show them on TV, they add in all these deleted scenes. And I've seen the movie enough to know which ones the deleted scenes were. But they just added probably 10 to 15 more minutes of screen time and they add absolutely nothing to the plot of this movie and they slow everything down even more. So I think that may have affected me even more on this viewing because I could really feel just how much they were trying to stretch segments of this movie out. So it's kind of like you watched the director's cut of Amadeus, huh? (laughs) Yeah, basically. Well, speaking of director's cuts, Brad, I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you have to say about director Chris Columbus this time around. I think we were both really impressed with what he did in the first film. What are your thoughts on the direction in this movie as opposed to the first film? I think that one of the keys to the literary series, at least, is the fact that J.K. Rowling gently takes us down a path from childhood innocence into the dark realities, you know, of the mystery of the Harry Potter's universe of Lord Voldemort and death and all these things. And so I think that Chris Columbus was the absolute perfect choice to direct the first two movies, given that he just works so well with child actors. And I think he the the key skill that he has is in bringing a sense of wonder and amazement, you know, and kind of like childlike anticipation out of the audience. You know, you see him do that in almost all of his movies. And so I really do think that he's perfect for the first two movies. But I kind of got the sense in The Chamber of Secrets that I could understand why they moved on from Chris Columbus, you know, in the third film, The Prisoner of Azkaban. And that's not to say that Chris Columbus didn't do a great job with this movie. I I really do think he did. But I could tell that, you know, the subject matter of this movie is much darker than the first movie. And I think that sometimes Chris Columbus struggles with it. I, I don't know if he always knows how to handle the whimsical when it's paired with the dark and foreboding. And so with this movie, I began to sense a tension between those two things much more deeply than I had in the first film. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Brad. And the more that I watch these Chris Columbus movies, the more I realize that he is very sort of Spielbergian in the way that he he makes his films. He really knows his way around an action set piece. He really knows his way around a John Williams score to go with things. And he knows how to really evoke that sense of wonder and awe And he's really good with sentiment. And I feel like he's kind of a bargain bin version of Steven Spielberg in that way. The problem is, like you said, where the where the material tips into the sort of darker elements. I don't know if he's always totally in control there. It still feels like he's not quite willing to jump all the way in. And this movie does get really, really dark. And I think that the reason that people don't kind of acknowledge how adult it is in its themes is because it still looks so visually different from the rest of the Harry Potter films. These first two movies are shot and framed and presented as sort of fun adventures for kids, but the material in Chamber of Secrets is among the darkest material you get in the whole book series, I think. One of the key aspects of this book is that you know, Ginny Weasley, who's an 11-year-old, is being possessed by a shadow, a spirit of Lord Voldemort, like, you know, the enemy that tried to kill Harry at the start of the series. And so you kind of look at that and you go, man, like, demonic possession is kind of like a staple of the horror genre, not necessarily children's books. This movie is dealing with a much deeper subject matter than the first book. 
So in the first episode that we did on Harry Potter, Brad, we didn't really talk about the three lead characters. We didn't talk about Harry, Hermione, and Ron and the performances of those actors. I think that's probably a good thing because I'm more ready to talk about their performances now than I was a week ago. You know, these movies come out a year apart from each other. You see these actors physically change over the course of a year. And I think having seen two movies worth of their acting, I think I'm more ready to comment on what they do well and what they don't do so well. Oh, for sure, Bob. I When you start this movie, the very first thing I noticed was, man, Harry looks a lot older than he does in the first one. And I, I looked up to see when the movies came out, and I realized that, A, Harry was 11 years old when the first movie came out in 2001, and B... That means that he was only one year older at 12, and yet to me, he looks a lot, lot older, and I think that you have a lot more depth in his performance. There's something about Daniel Radcliffe in the second movie that I feel like he developed as an actor far beyond where he was in the first movie. Yeah, he took a huge leap, and I'm really happy he did because there were a lot of things in the first movie that I think... As an audience member, you kind of just had to forgive about how limited he was as an actor. I do th- I do think that overall Daniel Radcliffe is not like the world's best actor, but even from year one to year two, you can see how much better he's handling the material. He knows how to react more as an actor instead of just waiting to like deliver his next line. They can put the camera on him a lot more when other characters are talking because he has learned how to react a little bit better. I think among the three child actors, he definitely took the biggest leap forward. Yeah, you know, Emma Watson, I think, was probably the best of the three actors in the first film. And I think she kind of maintains where she was at. She's fun. She's interesting. She has an ability to show disgust in a way that I, I don't think you see in many child actors. But I don't think she necessarily takes any steps forward in the second one, which isn't a bad thing. It's just to say that I think maybe in later films, when she begins to grow up a little more, I think she takes better steps forward in the later films. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And then that kind of brings us around to the third character, which is Ron Weasley, played by Rupert Grint. I thought that they did a great job of leaning into Rupert Grint's ability to play comedy. And a lot of it is just based around the fact that his voice is changing and they use that to really great comedic effect. But I think he also has the best comic timing of the three. They lean on him a lot for punchlines and things like that. But he really seems at ease, you know, delivering the punchlines and reacting in comedic ways to a lot of the scenarios around him. Yeah, I will say I struggle with him a little bit, and I don't know if it's necessarily his fault or the script's fault, but there's there's a lot of times in this movie where, you know, he's in the car and the spider grabs him and he gives you this face of like, oh no, a spider's grabbing me. Or earlier when they're driving in the car to Hogwarts and Harry almost falls out of the car. And, you know, he, he kind of gives you the, these faces that I just go... I don't know how I feel about these faces. They look painful, like he's constipated more than anything else. <laughs> so you're not you're not sold on him then. I, I'm not totally sold on Rupert Grint as Ron Weasley, but I guess I'll say this. Ron Weasley's probably one of my least favorite characters of the three that, you know, Ron oh. gives us in the books. I'm not a huge Ron Weasley fan. Did you did you just say one of my least favorite of the three? I did say that. <laughs> definitely, definitely in my top three least favorite of the threes. I think I meant to say least favorite characters in the book. But yeah, oh, okay. he, that, he that, is my least favorite fan. of the three main characters. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely and I think everybody would kind of fall into that as well. So I still think that the cast is a little bit too big to break down character by character. You know, we all we all know that we love Alan Rickman as Snape. We all know that we love Maggie Smith as McGonagall. Ooh, can I? Please. Yeah, I, I actually want to bring up a point. Uh-oh. I actually think that the script for Maggie Smith is not very good in this movie. And I actually found myself on this viewing getting really frustrated with her character because it is so unlike her character in the books and part of it, I understand that, you know, you can't tell every bit of the book in the same way in the movie. And so the the scene that I'm thinking of is when Hermione asks Professor McGonagall, you know, hey, what tell us about the Chamber of Secrets. And the idea that that Professor McGonagall would tell a group of students a horror story about students being killed by this 
unnameable monster roaming the halls of Hogwarts is absolutely ridiculous. And there's a few times in this movie where Columbus decides to give lines to Maggie Smith, you know, about the horrors that lie within the, you know, the Chamber of Secrets and within Hogwarts, where I'm like, Maggie Smith and McGonagall would not be terrifying students in Hogwarts. And it just felt really, really out of place for her to deliver that type of news. And I think that her performance suffers because of it. Brad, I think that's a great point. And I completely agree with you. It's not just McGonagall either. I think that my biggest issue with this film is that it's written by the same people as the first film. The screenwriter is Steve Cloves, who wrote The Sorcerer's Stone with help from J.K. Rowling. The problem is that I think they turn every character into just an exposition factory. Like the characters don't really talk about anything except the plot at any point. And Maggie Smith probably suffers more than anybody from this. She she only shows up to deliver key plot points and she has absolutely no character outside of that. Like even when Harry tries to talk to her about getting caught in a very compromising position, she's like, oh, it's out of my hands. She doesn't get any language that doesn't involve advancing the plot. And that's my biggest problem with this movie is that I think the plot of this movie, what happens in the movie, the themes that they get into is so much better than the first movie. But the script itself is so much worse. It's entirely exposition. Yeah. And when you look at the first movie, I think that they did a phenomenal job of kind of hiding the exposition behind the mystery of, you know, coming out of a world of non-magic into a world of magic. As you slowly learn more and more about the world, it's revealed to you in a way of like freshness and excitement. Whereas this movie, like you said, it just feels like the characters over and over and over are just saying, hey, by the way, there is a Chamber of Secrets. And it just kind of feels wooden almost. It really does. And one thing I noticed as I was watching it is that there's no character development throughout this movie. Now, you might think that there is, but I think when you kind of poke at it a little bit and dig deeper, what even seems and comes across like character development is actually only there to serve the plot of this story. So I'm thinking, for example, of the fact that at the beginning of the movie, we find out about Hermione's muggle parents. And it seems like a really cool thing to kind of bring some backstory into Hermione's life, the same way that they bring backstory into the Weasleys' lives. But the problem is, we only find out that Hermione is muggle-born because it plays a factor in the overarching theme of this film, which is the air of Slytherin, the idea of, you know, mudbloods and purebloods, the idea of avoiding, for lack of a better term, racism. It just feels cheap and it feels manipulative because they only pull that piece of Hermione's backstory in to specifically pay it off at the end of the movie. It's not like they introduced it in the first movie and now they're exploring it further. It's like, oh, we need Hermione to serve the purpose of this plot, so we're going to give her this backstory. We need Ginny Weasley to go into the Chamber of Secrets under the possession of Tom Riddle. So we're going to have a scene where Harry meets Ron's extended family. And like none of what seems like character progression is actually progressing their character at all, as much as it's just serving what plot points they needed to hit. Yeah. And the problem is that, you know, in, in so many ways, the chamber of secrets is a phenomenal book in which you really do learn more about the wider world that Harry is going to inhabit. You know, one of my favorite scenes of any of the books is the first time he goes into the burrow, you know, the Weasley's household. And I think that they kind of capture that a little bit with the way that Arthur gets excited about them driving the car and you get to see the clock that has, you know, each family member's face on it and where they are at the time. And I think that that scene was pretty well done as in a similar fashion to the first as, you know, creating a world in which is lived in and is fun and interesting. But those scenes are few and far between in this movie. And, and it really struggles because if I was going to pitch you the idea of a second movie in the Harry Potter universe, I think that what I would be trying to sell is, hey, we're going to go deeper with these characters that we started to reveal to you in the first movie. We're going to get to know them better so that in the later movies, when even darker, more serious things are going... You know, we kind of have a basis of foundation to connect with them on. And I just don't think that this movie does that. Well, and then on the other side, there's only scenes where they're spouting exposition 
or there's Chris Columbus giving us these really cool action set pieces, but every one of the action set pieces doesn't really do anything to further the plot either. And this was one of my complaints with the first movie was that the entire Quidditch subplot doesn't actually help move the plot of the Sorcerer's Stone along. And I think in this movie, you've got like three of those. You got the Quidditch match again, which the only really exciting thing about that is that you find out that Dobby has messed with one of the bludgers. And that really doesn't need to be shown for 15 minutes, but it is. You've got the flying car sequence, which is a fantastic sequence. I really enjoy it. But when you break it down, it doesn't really serve the plot other than to establish this car that's going to come back into the movie a little bit later. And then you've got the final one, which is the whole spider sequence with Aragog, which I actually think is one of the most effective sequences in the whole movie. It's really scary and eerie. I think the the puppets and animatronics, they work really, really well. I don't think it looks super fake. And I was on the edge of my seat. But at the end of the day, the only thing that Aragog really reveals to Harry and Ron is that Hagrid never opened the Chamber of Secrets. And that's something that we could have gotten in like a three minute sequence as opposed to a whatever it was, 15 minute sequence. And if you take those three things out of the movie, you basically trim this film down to about two hours. And I think it works a lot better. Yeah, I I will say I disagree with you about the car scene. I absolutely hated how they added in this tiny little part where Harry almost falls out of the car and, you know, to his death. And that just felt super contrived to me. And I like that scene. I'm just kind of like, okay, like all you had to do was have them drive and follow the thing and then show them arriving, getting hit by the Whomping Willow. You didn't need that action, quote unquote, sequence of Harry almost falling out of the car. Uh, And then the other part I was thinking about as you were talking when and I think they do this on purpose, but the important thing that Aragog reveals to them is not that Hagrid is not the one who, you know, opened the Chamber of Secrets. The important thing that he reveals to them is that the monster is the mortal enemy of the spiders. And yet Harry and Ron don't remember that at all. All they they're like, oh, yeah, Hagrid wasn't the one. And I'm like, I just found it totally unbelievable that Harry would have believed, just based on this diary's vision, that Hagrid was the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets. It just seemed very unbelievable to me that Harry would suddenly think that his best friend Hagrid was the one who killed a muggle. Yeah, I mean, if we're being 100% honest, I think that the entire diary subplot is, is really contrived. I don't know, and again, I don't want to pull the books into this because we're only going on what we see on the screen. I don't know that they do a good enough job of explaining in the movie how the diary gets its power, how Tom Riddle is able to manifest up out of the diary, how the diary is able to suck Harry inside of it. They just and I understand that everything is magic, but you can't just always fall back on like, well, it's magic. Of course, it can suck Harry up into it. How is it that a baby with no extraordinary magical talent was able to defeat the greatest wizard of all time? How did you escape? with nothing but a scar, while Lord Voldemort's powers were destroyed. Why do you care how I escaped? Voldemort was after your time. Voldemort is my past, present, and future. And I think that the way they use that diary in the movie is like, here's a bunch of exposition again. Look what happened 50 years ago. And like you said, Brad, Harry has this weird experience with this dark magic that he's never seen before. And all of a sudden it throws everything he knows into doubt about his friend Hagrid. And it just isn't completely believable. Yeah. And I I think you keyed in on something really important. You know, Chris Columbus uses magic in in kind of a whimsical way where he can use magic to do anything he wants. You know, there's not really much logic behind how magic is used in the first two movies. And I think one of the examples of that is when Gilderoy Lockhart does their first Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson and he releases the Cornish Pixies and he goes, oh, well, you three clean them all up. And Hermione, you know, instead of showing them, immobilizing them one by one like they do in the book, he just has Hermione put her one up in the air and scream, Immobilis! I'll ask you three to just nip the rest of them back into their cage. What do we do now?
And all of a sudden, every single pixie in the room is immobilized. And but not the humans. But not the humans. And I noticed that because Neville is hanging from the chandelier and like it doesn't affect him at all. Yeah. And I was like, you can't just use magic in any way that you want to accomplish <laughs> any purpose. But I think that the later movies take a much more logical approach to how magic is used in the world. And I think that that's really necessary for the movies to move in a more adult, dark direction. Well, Brad, I think this might be a good place for us to kind of pause for a little bit. I have a lot more to say. I really want to talk about the character of Dobby because I go back and forth on whether I love him or whether he is the Jar Jar Binks of Harry Potter. And after the break, we'll get into our favorite segment, Hot Takes. But before we do that, let's stop here and let's try this Buffalo Trace. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, so today we are checking out Buffalo Trace. Now, this is, in my estimation, you know, may not be in sales, but in terms of people talking about it, it seems like this is one of the most popular bourbons out there today. It seems to fly off the shelves. I see stores getting it in and they only let people buy, you know, one bottle per customer. Like it's some sort of extremely allocated resource and yet it retails for like 25 bucks and I've never quite understood what it is about Buffalo Trace that makes people go so crazy but people swear by this stuff Brad it's like their go-to you know middle to lower tier bourbon right there with something like a Weller Special Reserve but for some reason it flies off shelves at a rate that even Weller doesn't. Yeah I don't understand that Bob honestly I've had Buffalo Trace once or twice before and I was not impressed with it. I just thought it was an average bourbon. So I, to hear you say that it flies off the shelf like that, which I didn't know, I, I guess I'm really surprised because I've never really been impressed by Buffalo Trace. No, I haven't either. And I think we're going to probably make a lot of people angry because the way that this thing does fly off shelves, I'm sure that we have some huge Buffalo Trace fans in our audience but I'm not really on board for it either. And so maybe this time around, we'll, we'll really love it. We'll be blown away by it. I got this bottle of Buffalo Trace a couple months ago, and I immediately cracked it open and tried it because I wanted to be proven wrong, and I didn't like it. So I've been letting it kind of mellow on my shelf for a couple months. Maybe a few months of airing out is going to help it a little bit. What do you say we try it, Brad? What are you picking up on the nose of this Buffalo Trace? Mm, there's some nice buffalo musk about it that I'm just <laughs> really <laughs> loving. Made with bits of real buffalo. <laughs> Honestly, Bob, I, I don't feel like I'm getting a ton on the nose. I, I feel like it has some notes of caramel. There's a little bit of oakiness to it. I, it does strike me as a very traditional bourbon. I'm, I'm not getting a lot of complexity to it. No, this is definitely not complex. And I'm actually not even picking up very much of the sweet notes that you are, Brad. I'm not getting that caramel or the vanilla or the sort of mapley brown sugary notes. I'm only getting alcohol and oak. And it seems very astringent to my nose, too. Like, it, it smells like something I would expect from, like, a cheaper whiskey than it even is. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It may just be that it's a more... Uh, woody smell than sweet, but it doesn't even seem to have the full sort of spectrum of notes I'm used to smelling in a bourbon. Yeah, I would agree. It, it almost has a little bit of the, the more I smell it, the more I feel like I'm getting a little bit of that corn smell that is like unrefined and I'm not, not necessarily enjoying it. I think I'm going to give it a five on the nose. I'm not enjoying it so far. Not sure where we're going. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four and a half on the nose. I'm right there with you, Brad. There's really nothing remarkable about this at all so far. So maybe it'll have to wow us on the taste. Let's give it a sip. Bob, that's not great. <coughs> no, it's not. <coughs> and in fact, Brad, I, I think that everything I said about the nose is kind of coming true here. It just it tastes oaky. Uh, it's a little bit sweet up front, but not in that sort of classic dark sugary way that you get from a bourbon. Um, it just seems to have a little bit of that corn sweetness. It's really thin. It's kind of watery, and it's it almost feels like my mouth is forgetting that there's something in there. It's really watery tasting. It doesn't coat your tongue at all. I'm really, really underwhelmed with this taste on this. 
I think I'm going to disagree with you a tiny bit, Bob. I, I don't feel like it's quite as watery as you're saying. I, I do feel like it's coating my tongue a decent amount. Um, but you're right in saying that the flavor that you find in Buffalo Trace, if I had to describe it, it's not very mature. All of it tastes very young. The The sweetness tastes very young and unrefined. Um, the darker notes that you find on it are young and unrefined. I, I'm not really impressed with anything on the palate. I'm going to give it a three and a half on taste. Yeah, I'm going to stick at a four and a half again. I just am really under impressed by this. Uh, and then when it comes to the finish, what what stays on my tongue, it's kind of a weird finish, if I can be honest, because usually there's a certain area of my tongue that the finish of a whiskey will linger on. And this doesn't even make an impression on the very back of my tongue. It's almost like what's on the middle of my palate is what stays after I swallow. And it's just very bitter. It's bitter and it's not long lasting. I'm kind of happy it's not because it is bitter, but it's just very oaky and there's just no complexity to it. I'm not picking up a lot of other flavors. It just tastes like wood. And that's about it. I'm not a huge fan. I will say that the finish on this is probably better than the nose or the taste was, but I'm just going to give it a five on finish. Yeah, I'll give it a four and a half on finish. Uh, It's a little bit better than the taste. I I do enjoy the way it finishes to a point, but obviously not very much. Uh, Yeah, four and a half for me. All right, so that brings us to balance. This is nose, taste, and finish put together. I'm going to give this a six on balance. I think that it is fairly well balanced for what it is. It smelled like oak and nothing else. It tasted like oak and not much else. The finish was oak and not much else. So it was at least consistent. I just don't think it's very good. I'm going to give it a six. Yeah, I think it's fair that when a bourbon is really consistent, but we don't like any parts of that consistency, I think it's okay to give it a six. Just to recognize, hey, you guys did a good job of making a consistent whiskey, but it's not great. So yeah, I'm actually going to give it a six as well, Bob. All right, and that brings us to overall value. Now, in the state of Ohio, a fifth of Buffalo Trace is going to run you $25.49. So this is almost exactly the same price as a Weller Special Reserve. Now, we didn't really think Weller Special Reserve was that great either, but I would definitely take that over this. I can think of probably three or four different whiskeys at this price point that I would take over this. I think I'd probably rather shell out the extra, you know, three, four five bucks and get Elijah Craig before I'd get this. Uh, Evan Williams White Label is definitely better than this, in my opinion. So I think I'm going to give this a five and a half on value. You know, I think I'm going to stick right in the middle. I'm just going to give it a five on value. I just feel like you can get a lot better whiskey for $25 at the $15 to $20 price, let alone looking at the whiskeys that you would pay $25 for. So I I just, I struggle with this value. I don't know why it flies off the shelf. I'm going to give it a five. Now, again, Buffalo Trace, they're the people that make Pappy, you know, and they make Weller. So maybe it has something to do with the mash bill. People really love the mash bill and they think that this tastes like a cheaper version of what they're used to drinking with Pappy or something. I just I don't get it. I don't think it's a great whiskey. I would take Weller over this from the same distiller any day of the week. Brad, would you recommend? I'm not going to recommend Buffalo Trace. I just think that you can get such better things. And like you were saying, Bob, Buffalo Trace has a wide line of distribution, you know, beyond the ones that you just mentioned, Bob. They also put out Blanton's. They put out Eagle Rare. They put out lots of different types of whiskeys. So by no means am I saying that the Buffalo Trace company doesn't make good whiskey, because I actually really like a lot of the whiskeys they make. However, their, their standard line of whiskey, Buffalo Trace, is not one of them. So I'm coming out to a 25 and a half out of 50. Brad, what are you coming out to? I am coming out to a 24 out of 50. So that puts our average at a 24.75 or a 49 and a half. This is not even hitting that 50% mark for us. I'm a little surprised that it's this low, but I also, I wouldn't change anything about my score. This is just not one of my favorite whiskeys. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I, I want to give good reviews on whiskey, but this is a rough one, guys. And honestly, if you think that this is one of your favorite whiskeys, please reach out and let us know. Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, call in, because I I want to know what you guys think and why this is such a popular whiskey. Yeah, I would love to hear from Film and Whiskey Nation on this. Please call into the show and leave a voicemail about what it is you love about Buffalo Trace, because I've tried it and I've tried it and I just can't get into drinking it. I know that, you know, we talk all the time about drinking the whiskey you like. 
And it's a preference thing. And clearly my preference is not for this, but I want to hear a Buffalo Trace apologist explain what it is they love about this product to me, because so far I'm just not getting it. Well, I think it's unfortunate that we struggled so much with this whiskey, but honestly, Bob, it seems like we're kind of struggling with the Chamber of Secrets so far. What say you about getting back into the movie? Let's do it, Brad. So that was Buffalo Trace. We're back talking about the Chamber of Secrets, and it's time for our favorite segment, Hot Takes. Hot Takes. This is the part of the show where we read one-star reviews from IMDb, and we see if they have any validity or merit to them. Spoiler alert, they do not. Brad, where's our first hot take coming from today? Our first hot take comes from IMDb user named NetCitizen1. And being the very first citizen to ever reside on the internet, he decided to review the Chamber of Secrets and title his review, Magically Boring. Being the second book of Harry Potter... Oh, sorry, I'm going to stop for a second. If I mispronounce words or say anything wrong, I just want you to know that I'm reading the review exactly as it is written. And I'm (laughs) I'm not screwing anything up. So, anyways, let's get back into it. Being the second book of Harry Potter, better that the second one, I couldn't believe how bad the movie was. The children that act the main characters haven't learned how to act. I literally fell asleep as per and conjurer of magic. I think that the main problem is that is the director. He has never been a good director. Sorry for those of you who have children and will have to endure more that two hours of a magically boring movie. One star. Brad, I don't see what was wrong with that review. That sounds like a completely plausible and well thought out argument. Yeah, I especially think that he thinks that the word that is than. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, let's get into our second hot take. Hot take. The second one comes from IMDB user Anne Mason 1, and she titles her review Dreadful. This film encourages cruelty to animals. The cat and the blood and the theme of killing is revolting. This is not for children, and the people who made it should be run out of town. At least the first movie was fun to watch. The guy who plays Harry Potter is a bad actor. Wooden. The rest of the cast are stereotypes. The potty humor, throwing up, cruelty are meant to do what? A boring, disturbing waste of time. This film proves that animation is its own wicked wizard. It has the power to cast spells and hypnotize, but too often conjures up trash. It sure did in this flick. One star. Did did she think that the entire movie was animated? Yeah, I'm really confused about what movie did she watch? Because this is definitely a live action film. Yeah, I mean, I will say this. I will give validity to one of her points, Bob. All right, let's hear it. I I did struggle with one specific thing in this movie. There's the at the end of the movie when Gilderoy Lockhart, you know, accidentally erases his own memory. Ron just casually picks up a rock and as a 12-year-old cracks it into the head of Gilderoy Lockhart and knocks him unconscious. And I remember just thinking to myself, "Holy crap, that is like an incredibly violent act for a 12-year-old to take. <laughs> like, yeah. he just knocked a man unconscious for no reason. The dude was harmless. He was just asking him if this is where they lived. Yeah, I think Ron was just annoyed and didn't want to deal with them, so he just, you know, split his skull in two. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. That was strangely violent and just, like, passed over as a gag. All right, well, Ann Mason won. You win this week's Hot Take Award because Brad agreed with about 10% of what you said. (laughs) That's right. Good job, Ann. Let's get back into talking about the Chamber of Secrets, Brad. And I want to take this opportunity to talk about everyone's favorite character, Dobby the House Elf. Now, Dobby is my boy. I'm a big fan of Dobby in general. I think that when we get to movie seven, I will probably have some sort of emotional eulogy for Dobby. Spoiler alert. But in this movie, I had forgotten 
how Dobby so often toes the line between really endearing and incredibly annoying. I feel like they let all of his little gags where he's beating himself with things run way too long. Like he does it probably six or seven times throughout the film. And every time he does it, they let him do it for like 15 seconds at a time before a character interrupts him. It is difficult, sir. Dobby wonders where to begin. Why don't you sit down? Sit down. Sit, sit down. <laughs> Dobby, shush, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to offend you or anything. Offend Dobby? Dobby has heard of your greatness, sir, but never has he been asked to sit down by a wizard like an equal. You can't have met many decent wizards, then. No, I haven't. That was an awful thing to say. Bad Dobby! Stop! Bad Dobby! Dobby. Bad Dobby. Dobby! And it just gets so annoying after a while because they're not progressing the story at all. We're watching this little CGI character just, you know, make pratfalls and fall all over himself. And it really did remind me of Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, and I will say, this isn't to take away from Toby Jones, you know, who voiced Dobby. I think he's a phenomenal actor, and I honestly think that the voice acting performance given is is extremely effective. You know, Dobby genuinely comes across as this lonesome, sad creature who just wants the love and affection of anybody. And so I, I think that Toby Jones did a great job with him. But Bob, I, I'm going to go one step further than you. And say that I don't think I ever liked Dobby. And honestly, when I watched the seventh movie and spoiler alert, Dobby dies. And I I remember all of my friends like weeping at that scene. And I remember myself just being kind of like, oh, yeah, Dobby died. Like, I don't really care because I don't like Dobby. Wow. So so I that's my big out as a Harry Potter fan. Whether it's the books or the movies, I've never liked Dobby as a character. I don't think he's very interesting. I don't think that he's endearing. I think he's really, really annoying. And I struggle with him as a character. I'm not going to go that far. I do think that Dobby's character is overdone here. But you're right in that Toby Jones, first of all, is a great actor. And he does great voice work here. And when they let Dobby kind of get a little more introspective and serious, and especially Dobby's last scene, you know, when Harry gives him that sock and and he gets that line about Dobby is free and you can feel the sort of ache in his voice and, and like a load being taken off his shoulders. I legitimately teared up at that scene. I thought that there was so much emotion built into it. But I just hated how much they let Dobby go over the top with his dumb gags for the first 75% of this movie. And I can see why Dobby doesn't really, you know, isn't a fixture in the other movies at all. Because even if he had been a more main character, I think it kind of does have the Jar Jar effect where, like, no one wants to see Dobby anymore. We've had our fill of Dobby. Please get him off of our screens. Yeah, he definitely is a struggle in this movie. And honestly, I I think that that. Is, has more to do with him being written as a character, you know, in the books than anything that Chris Columbus was trying to do. Because I think that if there's anything I know about Chris Columbus in these Harry Potter movies, he really tries hard to stay faithful to the books. And I really appreciate him for that. But I just struggle with the character of Dobby in the cha- Chamber of Secrets. And so his performance in this movie just left me wanting more. Yeah, and Brad, I will say that I think a lot of our our complaints about Chris Columbus or lack thereof even, like you just said, you're you're, you're kind of defending Chris Columbus's decisions here, but I think sometimes we pin stuff on the director that really is the fault of the screenwriter, and I just think the script does a poor job with some of these sort of ancillary supporting characters in this movie. You know, we introduced all of the the main cast and the supporting cast in the first film. And then every year you get sort of these like bit part players that come in for a year. There's always a new defense against the dark arts teacher. And I feel like the more we get into the world of Harry Potter, the more those characters seem kind of like sitcom characters, like they have no nuance to them. 
And all of the actors that play those characters are always hamming it up. Kenneth Branagh in this movie as Lockhart is just over the top hamming it up. But that's the character, right? Jason Isaacs as Lucius Malfoy is just like snarling and the lighting is so dramatic. And it's like he's chewing scenery and taking names, you know, but that's the character, too. I don't think anyone in this movie is going any more overboard than the script is asking them to go. But that's also like one of my big problems with the script. And if there is something I'm going to pin on Chris Columbus, I just want to get this out of the way. It's the Moaning Myrtle character because she looks like she's 35 years old. And in reality, she is 35 <laughs> years old. I looked it up. Moaning Myrtle was 37 years old when they filmed this movie. <laughs> Why did you cast a 37 year old to play like a 15 year old? That, <laughs> that's really bad. I, I guess, honestly, I had never really thought about that. She didn't necessarily strike me as being super old, but now that you say it, looking back on it, Moaning Myrtle does not necessarily fit, you know, if she died when she was 12 to 14 years old. Right. Now, I will come to director Chris Columbus's defense in this one area. I think one of my my favorite scenes from this movie, and Bob, I'd be curious to hear what one of your favorite scenes from the movie is is actually the scene where they are in Diagon Alley and they were at Flourish and Bots picking up their books and Gilderoy has made a fool out of Harry. And right after that, you get this run-in between Lucius Malfoy and Arthur Weasley. Yes. And it is hands down one of my favorite scenes in the movie. You can just feel the underlying subtext of these two men having to work together at the Ministry of Magic and the disrespect that they have for one another. I think that the portrayal of Mr. Weasley by Mark Williams and Lucius Malfoy by Jason Isaacs is spectacular. You know, you can just feel the animosity that they have for one another. You can get that sense of, like, these are two adults barely withholding their contempt because there's children around. I mean, that scene was just absolutely electric. And I wish that there had been more of that going on throughout this movie. Brad, I'm so glad you brought that little scene up because I had made a note about Arthur Weasley in this movie. He's one of my favorite performers in the whole film, and he gets so little to do. But when you, if you watch just him during that interaction, the way he reacts to the things that Lucius Malfoy is saying to him, it is such a great piece of acting. When actors talk about their craft so often, you hear them say things like acting is reacting. Like it's not saying your line. It's what you're doing when you're not saying a line. And watching him take the sort of arrows that Lucius Malfoy slings at him and he kind of he, he kind of gives this little smile and then proceeds with his day. But you can see the hurt behind it. You can see the anger behind it before he resolves himself to taking the high road. And you see all those emotions go across his face in the span of a second and a half. It is just such a brilliant piece of acting. In a movie full of people going hammy and over the top, it's very subdued and really subtle. And I thought he was like the MVP of this movie for me. I totally agree. And this, you know, the scene when, you know, when they're sitting at home and he sits down for breakfast and he looks at Harry and he goes, oh, I don't know you. Who are you? And, you know, Daniel Rad Radcliffe perfectly goes, well, I'm Harry, Harry Potter, sir. And you see that wonderment come over his face that all wizard kind has when they hear about the hero who defeated Voldemort. But then in a moment, he kind of turns it off and says, well, Harry, it's good to have you here. And he just moves on with his day. It's such a beautiful piece of acting. I, I love, love, love the performance of Arthur Weasley. And I even love the way that his reaction to finding out who Harry is, it's different than all the other people. Everybody else goes, oh, Harry Potter. He just goes, are you really? Like, and it's it's the line reading. It's the inflection. Like, Every choice he makes in this movie is just super good. And I'm so glad we just spent like four minutes talking about this person that has very little screen time because he just knocks it out of the park. I was going to say, I think that we've spent more time talking about him than he actually has screen time. All right. So, Brad, I want to say before we get out of here, I want to start talking about the themes of the movie. Uh, but I will say first that I think the last 45 minutes of this film are like pitch perfect. And that's what I remember from this movie. That's why I've always liked this movie better than Sorcerer's Stone up until this viewing, because I remember the ending of it. And the plot is so much better. It's much more of a mystery. It's much more of like a whodunit. 
all of the threads of the plot finally come together at the end. You understand what Dobby's been doing the whole time, why Lucius Malfoy's been folded into things, what Hermione has to do with all this, who Ginny is. It all comes together at the end. And I think that the Basilisk sequence is just, it holds up really, really well for me. I know a lot of people think that that dumb animatronic Basilisk head looks really fake, and I get that. But I think the sequence, everything from the Aragog sequence on, I think works really, really well. And in that sense, it's like the polar opposite of the first film, where I thought the the first third was the best part. This movie definitely kind of drags until the ending, and then it hits you with like a 10 out of 10 ending. Yeah, I was going to say, Bob, because we just watched The Sorcerer's Stone a week ago, I actually stopped the movie around the 30-minute mark. I think I stopped it right at like 38 minutes. And I thought to myself, man... The first 30, 35 minutes of Sorcerer's Stone was so much better than the Chamber of Secrets. However, I would agree with you in saying that the ending of this movie, you know, the climactic sequence was so much better than the Sorcerer's Stone. Like everything about the Basilisk scene was great, except the only struggle that I had with the action sequence, you know, once Harry's in back into the main chamber and the Basilisk is attacking Harry, I really struggled with the actual fight that they have once Harry has the sword of Godric Gryffindor because it genuinely looked like a 12-year-old kid was flailing a sword around trying to fight off a snake. And it looked absolutely terrible when Harry is just flinging this sword about. And in my mind, I just go, yeah, I don't care if the basilisk could see or not. He would have destroyed Harry. There's no way Harry could have killed this basilisk. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably fair. Especially since that thing was like, you know, launching itself at the rock cliff that Harry was climbing up. It's like, how do you miss that badly, dude? Yeah, I I will say that that's one area that reminded me of why Chris Columbus had to go as a director, because I don't think he has a great handle on how to do action with real consequences. You know, even like I'm going to call back to a movie that he did a long time ago called Home Alone. But, like, even the action in Home Alone, there's never a sense of real consequence for what they do. You know, no matter what the robbers do, Harry and Marv, they keep getting back up and they keep chasing after, you know, Macaulay Culkin. And there's kind of that sense of, like, well, I don't think there's any really bad consequences for what's going to happen with Harry when he's fighting the Basilisk. Because he never feels real. It never feels convincing. It always just kind of feels like a 12-year-old is fighting a massive force of nature. But because we can't have Harry die, nothing bad's going to happen. And and that's exactly how it plays out. So I, I think that that scene especially, you know, the ending of it when Harry is actually fighting the Basilisk, it just reinforced to me the need for a more mature director at the helm. Well, and I think that's why you hire Chris Columbus. Like, if you're a studio executive, you watch Home Alone, and it's a movie about a kid that that basically murders two people that come into his house. But because it's a family movie, it's this sort of bloodless, fun violence that has no real consequences in the real world. It's a very safe thing to do. He's a safe director. And I think that for what they were trying to do with Harry Potter, this was obviously a huge... Like The IP on this is, is huge. Like, they're selling tons and tons of books. But it's an unproven commodity in terms of the movie world. So you're like, you want a safe director that will deliver what you want, which is family entertainment. So you hire him for Sorcerer's Stone. You hire him again for Chamber of Secrets. And I think they realized at this point, the material's getting edgier. It's getting darker. We need someone who can handle that a little bit better. And I I think I'm sensing, Brad, that you struggled with the disconnect between Chris Columbus as a sort of safe choice for a director and the edginess of some of this material. Oh, for sure. And and I, I don't want to use this as a way to bash Chris Columbus. I genuinely think he does a good job with the first two movies. But there is a sense that with Columbus at the helm, this series is not going to go to the emotionally deep places that it needs to go. And I understand the switch to Alfonso Cuaron in the, in the third movie. All right, so before we go, I do want to say one thing that I really love about this story in the Harry Potter universe, and especially Chris Columbus's decision on how to end the film, because I think it emphasizes what's important about this film. While this movie is a really dark, disturbing mystery story, 
J.K. Rowling was doing a lot more to kind of expand the universe and give it some sort of ethical, moral underpinnings. And some of it's really on the nose, and I hate the way that they approach a lot of it, like the talk about mudbloods and purebloods. It's so very clearly racism, and it's so very clearly fascism and Nazism. But I think what people miss in this movie is that this isn't necessarily the main theme of the film. It's not combating hatred and racism and bigotry, while that is part of it. But I think you really see what this movie is about in the very, very last scene where they're all in the Great Hall again. This movie ends not with the kids leaving Hogwarts. It ends right when Hagrid comes back to school. And to be honest with you, Brad, like I I shed a tear at the end of the movie because the emotional resolution to the movie is Hagrid returning to Hogwarts. And what that represents in the course of this movie is celebrating what I would call the least of these. Hermione in this movie and her muggle parents, you know, she's they're looked down on by a lot of people in the wizarding world, but they have a place here in the in the wizarding world and at Hogwarts. You know, Ginny and the Weasleys, who were shown throughout the film, don't have much and they're looked down on by the Malfoys, but they have a place in this community. Dobby, who has been neglected and abused by his owners. And at the end of the film, his arc is redeemed. He's freed. And then the last piece in that puzzle is Hagrid, who is, you know, time and time again, kind of talked about as a little bit dumb, a little bit dull, kind of this brutish guy. He smells, he lives out in the woods. And the place that this movie ends is with Harry giving Hagrid a hug and saying, like, it's not Hogwarts without you. That's where the movie really hits me emotionally, because the point of this film is that everyone has a place here in the wizarding world. And especially the people that make it what it is aren't the people that have all the wealth and have all the power and have all the privilege. It's the people that are on the margins that actually mean the most to this world. And not only that, that they become your family. It's it's the people that you pour into and that you care for. They're the ones who become your family and make life meaningful. You know, like you said, Harry at the end of the movie goes up to Hagrid and he doesn't say, hey, it's great to have you back. He says, hey, it wouldn't be Hogwarts without you. You know, this family would be incomplete if your presence was missing. And I think that that's just such a beautiful message that you get throughout the entire Harry Potter series. But I want to go I want to go further and say that in this movie in particular, I think this movie did what the first movie couldn't do emotionally. You know, we had that sense of awe and wonder at the end of the first film, and we want to go back to Hogwarts because we loved this new world that we've discovered. But this movie really did a much better job, I think, at getting to the core of what it is that we love about the Harry Potter world. It's not just that Harry has found a family. It's that Harry has found a family of people who are in some ways just like him. They're looked down on by others. They're outcasts. They're from the margins. And we're told that those are the people that actually give places meaning. It's the people who you wouldn't think would have an impact that actually have the most impact. Yeah, and I think that this is where you really see the themes of J.K. Rowling's writings coming through most strongly. You know, she just has this sense of family and of, like you said, you know, the least of these being important in the world and making a difference. And I think that Chris Columbus really does do a great job of drawing those themes out through this movie, even though it's a two and a half hour movie that probably could have been a little under two hours. All right. So, Brad, we've talked long enough. I want to hear your final score on this film. And let's add another layer to it. Do you think it's as good as the first one? And would you recommend I am going to give this movie a seven and a half out of 10. I don't think it's quite as good as the first one. I I think that the first one does such a better job of setting you up into the world of Harry Potter. And I think it does do a good job of starting the conversation about what it means to be important in this world, what it means to be a good person, that I I really love the first movie, you know, but I, I really think that they're close. Obviously, I'm going to recommend this movie. I I really love the Harry Potter series. I'm going to recommend every single one of them to to anybody to watch. But I will say, thus far, I think that Chamber of Secrets might be, in my opinion, the weakest offering given in the eight movies. I think I'm also going to give it a seven and a half. And I hate to do that because, like I said, for a long time, I liked this movie better than Sorcerer's Stone. Now, I'm going to make the comparison to Return of the Jedi in that I think Return of the Jedi probably has higher highs than 
A New Hope, but it also has much lower lows. And I think that the ending of this film, for me, emotionally, is better than anything I got in Sorcerer's Stone. But I do think Sorcerer's Stone is just a more consistently good movie. This movie really does have some dragging moments that are just quite boring, to be honest. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Of course, I recommend this movie. I love Harry Potter. Brad, I think I would disagree that this is the weakest one. And, and we'll get to that when we get to the movie that I really do think is the weakest. But you're right. This it, it seems like a, a, a little bit of a step back from the first film. And I think that a change was necessary when you get to Prisoner of Azkaban. But we want to know what you, Film and Whiskey Nation, thinks about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. If you want to connect with us, find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, at Film Whiskey. Or you could call our call-in line. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the air. Our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. Next week, we will be taking a look at the 1968 masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. 